Amen. Questions will be on the screen throughout the throughout the message. To reduce, at the end of the message, we respond uh, just together in these questions and, and conversations. Conversation before we before we close. I hope that y'all are are doing well. And if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to the Old Testament to Nehemiah chapter four. And as we continue along in our our journey throughout Ezra and Nehemiah, last week we looked at Nehemiah chapter. Three, 32 verses, 40 groups of people who were rebuilding the wall of the temple, or not, excuse me, not the temple, but the wall around the city. Over 40 sections of wall were, were mentioned. Priests joined, high priests joined, goldsmith, perfumers, men and women all joined together to build the wall. People from inside the city, people who were outside of the city. Chapter 3 laid out a schematic of leadership and delegation and how the walls were going to be built, who was going to be building where and how. It's not until chapter 6 that we will see the, the, the actual walls and, and gates completed, but what chapter 3 showed us was that during the rebuilding Process. there was an amazing amount of unity and servant leadership bound up in that group where they rallied around the call of their leader to remember who they are in God and for each of them to undertake this massive project of rebuilding the walls around the city of Jerusalem. It's kind of like chapter 3. It's kind of like watching the movie Dunkirk. You ever seen the movie Dunkirk? You know the history. You know history. You know the history of what takes place there, why it takes place there, but still watching it play out is still pretty amazing to watch. Chapter 3 tells us what happens, but as we move now into chapter 4, we're watching how it all plays out. Last week we talked about how uh, this list shows us the, the unity that's around of this, of this group of God's people, and it points us to strive for unity in Christ in the church, to strive for unity by serving in humility one another. Leaders or not, we all humble ourselves before one another with the example of not Nehemiah or just the high priest, but as our servant, Savior Jesus Christ, who washed his disciples' feet and humbled himself, even death on a cross for our sins. He is the prime example for us, the leading example for us of how we are to not only love one another, but humbly serve one another. Second, we saw how unity gives strength. Their unity didn't happen just because they had a vibrant leader, but they were unified around the identity as being God's people, and that this was their city, and they were family. Their oneness, their strength in them as our oneness in Christ strengthens us as the body of Christ. In Christ is our strength. 
Lastly, we saw how unity builds everyone up. Everyone was involved, not just professional, skilled laborers and engineers, but everyone was involved, and so is the church. We are called to work, do the work of the ministry, all of us, to cultivate growth and maturity and building one another up. And when we're all part of this work, that unity shines through. That's where everyone is. Built up. Moving into chapter 4, that unity did not always come easy. As we know, unity doesn't always come easy. Because in fact, chapter 4 through chapter 6 will describe various types of adversity, to say the least, God's people face. That Nehemiah faces personally, his own personal attacks that he has uh, levied against him and accusations. Unity has to be fought for, it has to be preserved, it has to be protected, encouraged, and even prayed for. Let's look to Nehemiah chapter 4, and we'll start reading in verse 1 together. Now when Sunballot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered, not cheered, jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish and burn in the bronze one at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside them, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, will he will it upon it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, who hear, O our God. For we are despised. Turn back their taunts on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sins be blotted out from, their, from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we build the wall. And the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to the work. But when Sunballah and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and say, guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we are not able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near Leaders came from all the directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. 
and the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and the open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked, and I arose, and I said to the nobles, and to the officials, and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. This is the word of the Lord. May his Holy Spirit open our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. So as we move down to chapter 4, we are now back into the narrative of Nehemiah. And I suspect that we probably could see what was coming. That we, that we would know that, that opposition was, was on its way. The walls were being built. Unity was there among the people. Everything seems to be going exactly as it should be, right? Then opposition. External opposition. And then as that external opposition ramps up, the people begin to face, face internal issues. Issues of fatigue and excuses and fear. Fear from a, a real legitimate enemy that is threatening them. Again, it is to no surprise to us because... We know from the Bible, from Christian history, even in our own time, that there are great times of persecution from just some of the most wicked people and the most evil people who have no regard for life, no regard for righteousness, no regard for justice, no regard for the things of the Lord and the Lord himself, and therefore have a complete disregard for God's people and for God's kingdom. Persecution and opposition against God's people goes all the way back to the beginning. The seed of the serpent is still alive and well. When we read these stories, these, these stories, these things in scriptures, when we hear about persecution, what is it that we want? When we see things that are not right, especially to God's people, what is it that we want? We want justice. We want God to act. And we cry out for God to act. We want God to act as if, or in the same way that he acted in the, uh, at the Red Sea. You know, when Israel was exiting Egypt and Pharaoh changed his mind and decided to take his armies and his chariots against God's people who, was, who happened to be backed up to the Red Sea. They were backed up to the, up to the Red Sea. They had nowhere else to go. And here comes, the, here comes the, the, the armies of Pharaoh directly at them. What would God do? We understood that God split the sea in two. Where Israel then could flee across the, across the sea on dry land. And as they crossed the, the, the dry land, Pharaoh and his chariots began to chase them down into the Red Sea. And what did God do? He caused the sea to swallow them up. 
That's the kind of justice and the vindication that we all want when we hear of persecution and we hear of suffering of God's people at the hands of wicked men and women. Yet even before the Lord delivered Israel from Pharaoh, the people had to face the opposition and the fear of a greater enemy who covered them. They had to face the, the fear that was right in front of them with their backs against the sea in order to trust in the Lord that God will surely deliver them once more. We may not get the Red Sea moments of justice here, but what we do see is God's people once again being sustained by the Lord's omnipotent hand despite the enemy before them. Here in Nehemiah, we read the we, 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 we read the very real fear of a people struggling to do what they know they are supposed to do in the face of real hardship, in the face of real threat. And that sounds very familiar. It sounds familiar to me. I may not face the same threats that, that they have facing them, but I also know very well of all of the things, all of the responsibilities and tasks and duties and jobs and obligations and debts that I must do every day. And guess what? It's hard. It's hard to hold the line against the threats and the, the darts of the evil one, the temptations that come our way. It's hard to hold the line when fear ascends. It's hard to face the battle with my flesh every day. It's easy to get weary because the rubble is too great. It's easy to get beaten down. It's easy to get discouraged. And yet what we see in this passage today is a very good leader, Nehemiah, standing in the gap before his people leading them that even under duress keep building. There is a reality in our passage this morning of real opposition. There is a reality in all of history of God's people of all the various different types and different ways that, that God's people have faced opposition and enemies that have come before them in persecution and suffering, including today. From the get-go, right here in chapter 4, we are brought back to these two guys, Sambalat and Tobiah, who we heard about back in chapter 2, who began to jeer them even then. And so this is now the third time here in Nehemiah, where these same two guys openly, directly opposed the Jews who were rebuilding the walls and the gates of the city. Before, in chapter 2, they were just upset that someone would, would even come back to care for Israel. And now, 
They are angered about the actual building that's taking place. They are enraged, and they jeer. They, they mock them. They derided them. They made fun of the Jews. Listen, anger is often the world's response to God's work. Because God's work, the building of his kingdom, always challenges their worldview and their values. There's no difference here. These verbal attacks were designed to discourage the, the Jews and to discourage Nehemiah to stop building. It was psychological warfare. He says to them, you are feeble. You are feeble, meaning you know you are weak. You know that, that you are weak. This is preying upon something that they already know about themselves. Something that they already know, that they know that they are very hypersensitive about. They know they're weak. They know their numbers are small in comparison to everyone. They're hypersensitive about this. So what a great dart to use against them to tell them that we know you're weak too. And we know that you know that you're weak. You are feeble. Will you restore their wall? This is to put doubt in their mind, that in their fragileness, that it is unwise to continue in this project. He says, will you sacrifice? This is poking fun in their trust in God, as if their trust in faith was fake, not real. Their faith is not even real. He asks, will they restore the stones that they trashed, that are trashed? And this question was to, was to spread disinformation. It was to, to tell them that most of the stones are trashed. You can't use them. Where are you going to get stones? Where are you going to get useful stones? But this wasn't true. The walls have already been, are being built. The, most of the material is still there and can be used. But if you don't know this, disinformation will creep in and cause distrust. Sort of like, did God really say? The strategy was to use truth into which they were sensitive to and to exploit. To take half-hearted truths and twist them in, in such a way that they will believe the negative effect of them. To outright lie in order to intimidate them. Tobiah joins also in the mocking about the, the fragility of the walls that they are building, that they couldn't even hold up a box. They were, see the problems? They're really just skinned bones and a lot of hair. They're like a cat. But their opposition didn't stop there. Because the mocking didn't stop them from building. 
Verse 6 tells us that, that they continued on in, in, in building. In fact, it tells us that they, the building progress continued in such a way that the, the walls were now about halfway high. And by the way, that is a huge uh, win. Because in some places on those walls, they were nine feet thick. Nine feet. That's huge. Nine feet thick. But when Sundown and Tobiah heard about the progress, they ratcheted up their disdain. It says in verse 7, But when Sundown and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashkenites heard that they were repairing the walls of Jerusalem, was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, what does it say? They were very angry. That very angry led them to do verse 8. And they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem. Right? So you ever heard of their fighting that? It caused confusion in it. So what is verse 7 showing us? Now all of Jerusalem is being surrounded by enemies. Samaria to the north, Arabs to the south, Ammon to the east, then Ashdod to the west. That is a big deal. Because not only are they collaborating together in anger against the Jews, but now... They are working together and plotting on how we can destroy them. How we can wipe this people out. How we can continue to bully them and keep them underneath our thumb. And under our authority. But why? Why in the world would these guys set themselves against them like this? Why are they so angry? Like, yeah, I mean, we, we see things today in, in our world, and, and you look at people's anger at things. Like, Why are you so angry? Like, what, what really is it? What's the hostility really for? Why be violent? Why? Here's the reality. If Nehemiah and the Jews succeed in building the walls and the gates then the agenda of Sambalat and Tobiah would be thwarted. Rebuilding the walls would give protection to the people, and it would create a safe place for God's people to dwell, and where they could live out God's word with goodness, with justice, and righteousness according to the word of God. But more importantly, they would be a separate and unique people once again. You know, before Nehemiah came on the scene, there were no walls. There was no distinction, no distinction, no distinguishing between the identity of Israel and the nations. And therefore, all these guys, these other governors, had all the power, they had all the authority to pretty much do whatever they wanted to take advantage of the weak and the powerless and the leaderless people, which included the Jews to use and abuse for their own benefits. They didn't care about goodness or justice or righteousness, but rather they sought to exploit the weaknesses and the vulnerability of the Israelites 
for their own profits. That is why they are so angry. So here in Jerusalem, and here in our world today, there is a clash between two agendas, two worldviews. And outside of the gospel, there is no reconciling the two. Certainly at times, we certainly have been blessed to live in civility, in kindness and respecting of one another. But when push comes to shove, they are two different worldviews that could not and cannot be reconciled to one another. Nehemiah was seeking the good for the kingdom of God. Sundalit and Tobiah and these other guys were seeking their own advantage at the expense of others, their kingdom, and their own power. Psalm 2, verse 1, asks the question, Why do the nations rage and plot in vain? And the people plot in vain. Because they seek to build and preserve their own kingdoms of sin at the expense of others, which directly opposes the kingdom of God. I said in Ezra, when opposition and enemies rose against the Jews, who were at this time, they were rebuilding the temple. I said that no matter how good it seems, how accepted we are as a church, God's people, the kingdom of God is still being built behind enemy lines. That's the reality. We must never forget that. The jeering, the mocking, the plotting, the persecution, the mandates, the lawsuits are all used to intimidate and to discourage us. To derail the work of the gospel and the building of the kingdom of God and to disunite the people of God. But we believe from scriptures, the authority of scriptures, the exclusivity of the gospel, and so on, is and will be increasingly irreconcilable with a hostile world that has become more and more secular. When a hostile world becomes, when a world becomes more and more secular, it will become more and more opposed and hostile to the authority of scriptures. It's irreconcilable unless the gospel is believed. That is why we must face, we will face increasing hostility. So yes, there are those in this world who are set against Christ. They're set against the Lord. They're set against the gospel in the kingdom of God. And why? Because we have a real enemy in this world. The devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, slinging flaming darts with the exactly the discouragements and the attacks to derail and disunify God's people. He attacks us. The kind of attacks that will do damage. I said this again when preaching through Ezra, I think this is good to say today. Satan is a defeated 
but God's kingdom may look small, it may look weak, it may look slow, it may look like an impossible building process, our foe may be strong, experienced, and cunning, our flesh is weak, it seems as if we are standing against insurmountable odds. But it's the kind of odds, as I said, packing Ezra. It's the kind of odds that God says, yeah, I got this. Don't forget who has gone before us. Don't forget who has conquered sin and death. Don't forget who has equipped you for every battle. Don't forget. The, the armor that he has given you. Ephesians chapter 6. You know what I'm talking about? Go to Ephesians chapter 6 on this Lord's Day and read it and memorize it. Don't forget one day his kingdom is coming. And when it is fully consummated, he will crush all of these meager kingdoms. Don't forget that this light, momentary affliction will seem as nothing in eternity. The Lord Jesus Christ, if you are in Christ, is with you, is with me. And as the question was asked in Psalm 2, 1, why did the nation rage? He says in verse 4, Confirming his sovereignty and his omnipotence as our Heavenly Father. He says, He, the Lord, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Therefore, in the face of the reality of this opposition, I believe also that God's people should pray. And even pray as Nehemiah prays. Nehemiah prays. And Nehemiah's prayer is a prayer for justice, for God's judgment. This prayer is not a prayer of man's justice or man's vengeance, but it is a prayer for the perfect, righteous justice of the Lord. When Nehemiah becomes aware of the, the impending darts of discouragement that are about to spread like wildfire throughout the people, he prays. He prays. Look at verse 4. He says, Here, O our God, we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads, excuse me, and give them up to the plunder in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sins be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. That is a strong prayer against their enemies. This is what we would call an imprecatory prayer. These type of prayers, most notably found in the Psalms, contain a desire that God would bring 
judgment and retribution upon their enemies. The enemies of God's people. And here, Nehemiah is doing the same thing. He's calling on God to conquer his enemies. To not overlook their sinful guilt. To do justice on these guys. For their sin is against God and his people. And it provokes him, God, to anger. This is a prayer asking God to come down at this very moment and demonstrate your sovereignty over these enemies. Many people struggle with these kind of prayers in the Bible. Whether it be by Nehemiah, David, Jeremiah, and others. Because they seem to be contradicting Jesus' teaching. Jesus is teaching, notably on the Sermon on the Mount, to, to love your enemies. And so the question is asked is, how could you pray for your, uh, pray for your enemies that God would enact just judgment upon them, and yet still say that you love them at the same time? That you're being obedient to Jesus' command to love them at the same time. That's the, that's the complaint that's levied against such prayers. And, but here's the problem. In our modern minds, the reason why we find such imprecatory prayers to be vengeful rather than righteous is because we are soaked in modern ambivalence to morality, where any kind of righteousness, justice, Judgment or holiness sounds hateful. It's why so many people take offense to penal substitutionary atonement, what Christ did on the on the on the cross to atone for our sins, and why God's sending Christ to be our substitution on the cross, and why the holiness of God is so offensive to others because we have such a ambivalence to morality. But these kind of prayers are not for personal vengeance. It's prayer for God to do something, for God to enact justice. It is for God to, to work out His perfect righteousness and therefore judge according to His righteousness those who are threatening His people with violence and seeking to destroy and to stop the project. There is nothing wrong with praying for God to uphold His justice and his righteousness against those who are coming against God's people. These are not in conflict with Jesus' words to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. Is it not loving to pray for an enemy to receive justice who is trying to destroy you so that they could continue in their evil and their wickedness before God? Is it loving to pray they would avoid God's justice? Is it loving to pray that these enemies of the gospel would be delivered from their evil because God enacted his justice and his judgment against them? Is the Lord not showing his kindness to judge these enemies in order to draw them to 
Is it out of the question that God's justice could result in their salvation? Was it not loving for God to answer the prayers of Ananias, who was in Damascus, who was praying that God would deliver his people, this very fragile church, from Saul, who was coming to ravage the church, who was coming to arrest them, all the Christians he could find. And Ananias was praying that God would deliver them, that God would stop Saul from coming, or whatever it may be. Was it not loving for God to terrify Saul and to blind him and then to call him to repent of his sin and trust in the sufficiency of Christ's atoning work on the cross? Should we also not pray for the conversion of our enemies? Of course. That's loving. But is it also loving? Is it also loving to pray for God's justice? loving our enemies, and praying for God's righteousness, brothers and sisters, are not lies. When we pray for those who are persecuting us, yes, we are praying for their salvation. But we are also praying that God would judge them and give, give us justice. And may he use that for his glory. Amen. The lesson for us is to pray. To pray the Lord would guide us in how we are to love our enemies who have set themselves against us, how we are to pray for our enemies who are seeking to persecute us, and even to pray for God's justice against the enemies of the Lord. Not seeking our vengeance, and praying that God's righteousness and holiness would be upheld. Those who seek to persecute the church those who are seeking to persecute Christians because of the gospel, because of Christ, then they're really not attacking us, but they're attacking the Lord. And as we stand face to face before our enemy who is hurling darts at us, as we are feeling the effects of the attacks, maybe even being discouraged by the impending attacks, as verse 9 says, we pray to our God. We rely upon him to defend us, to defend his name, as we are remembering to whom we are praying, our Father who art in heaven. This isn't all that we see them do to prepare for the enemy. We see here in this passage the, the vigilance of God's people to endure to hold fast, to stand guard with the, the sword in hand, to be steadfast in the work of the Lord. It wasn't easy. Remember, they were surrounded by vastly great numbers of people who had an army. These threats could have been just that. They could have been just empty threats. But if the Lord had not enacted them on their behalf, then some, and if some battle wanted to, and Tobiah wanted to, and these others, they could have crushed them. After the mocking, Nehemiah prayed for the Lord's justice, and the people continued to build the wall, united in one mind. I love that in verse 6. United in one mind. The opposition ramped up to threatening violence, to confuse them, to discourage them. 
The psychological warfare now turned into threats of violence. In verse 9, they prayed again. And they set a guard day and night. Verse 10, this is where things turn inward. The rumors and the threats caused discouragement, and that made the strength of buildings become too hard to bear. Those who lived outside of the city became fearful as well. They had no defense. And they began to openly complain, we need help. It was a legitimate concern. Nehemiah answered that concern by, by grouping everybody and positioning these groups and these families armed them up and put them in the most vulnerable places at the walls to protect the people in the city. But it's what Nehemiah preaches in verse 14. I think stands out to us. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He preaches at their fear. Because at the root of their discouragement and their complaints was fear. The project had always been hard. The stones have always been heavy. The project had always been vast. But the material had always been there. They had already accomplished so much. That's not the problem. The problem is fearing man. They feared man. They put man in these governors and these armies that had surrounded them over the Lord. They feared them more than fearing the Lord. And he tells them to replace that fear with something greater. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Remember him who has delivered you. Remember him who is holy. Remember him who is great in strength to slay even the hearts of, of the king on your behalf. Remember him who is awesome, all-inspiring. Remember him who is sovereign and all-powerful. Remember the creator and sustainer of all of the universe, including you. Remember him who chose this tiny, feeble people. To be his people, to put his name on. And how he has constantly delivered them over and over and over again. The Red Sea was just one of many. He says, This is to be your strength. This is to be your strength when you stand to build. This is to be your strength in preparation for battle. This is your strength to stand and fight and build and work and serve and endure. It's the Lord. Is this challenge to Israel different from the challenge that we are called to as brothers and sisters in Christ? 
be watchful and stand firm in the faith. Act like men, be strong. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in your faith. 2 Corinthians 1.24 For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Galatians 5.1 Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the, in the evil day, and have nothing, and have done all to stand firm. Ephesians 6, 13. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side in faith of the for it is by faith in the gospel, Philippians 1.27. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Philippians 4.1. So then, brothers, stand firm and do not stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, to the gospel, to the truth, to the scriptures, either by our spoken word or by our letter. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm. Is what Nehemiah said in chapter 4, verse 10, the exact same call that we are called to stand firm? We stand firm in the gospel. We stand firm on the authority of God's word. We may be shaken. We may be threatened. We are going to be fearful at times. But do not lose sight of what we are standing on is uncrushable. It's not like the wall that broke down in Jerusalem. The word of God stands forever. Amen. Stand firm. It. Our glorious foundation we stand. One of the amazing things about this passage that I have had the joy of experiencing all week is as I've read this passage over and over and over and studied it to prepare to preach is the fact that you get to verse 14. And when you get to verse 14, you almost forget about all the other 13 verses of the open hostility, the mocking, the distress, the internal problems, and their weariness. We do not forget that we have an enemy, that you have an enemy, that life is difficult, and that work is hard, and that there will be dangers, toils, and snares. But when our eyes and our hearts are fixed upon the Lord, the reality then of the enemy is overcome by the truth of a sovereign God and Savior who has overcome sin and death, who is leading us, even when we are under duress, 
He is leading us to continue in faith. To boldly pray. To give us the strength to remember our wartime stance of prayer. To lead us in praying for justice, yet also loving our enemies at the same time. And leading us to be as vigilant as God's people to work to flee temptation, to always be confessing and repenting of our sins, to fight the good fight. Set your minds, brothers and sisters, on Christ, and be strong in the Lord. Don't lose heart. Do not be discouraged in this good fight. Continue to build, even under duress. For not only you, but also for your brothers, for your sisters, for your sons, for your daughters, for your wives, and for your church. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word and how it speaks life leads us in righteousness. Lord, we confess to you this morning our weakness. Our, we are prone to fear. We are prone to fear the things that we have lost and are losing. We are prone to fear those who are stronger than us and greater than us and have a louder voice than us. We're prone to fear those who are stronger than us, those who can hurt us, those who can take away our rights. Forgive us for fearing and help us to trust in you. Help us to endure. Give us endurance to fight the good fight. Let us be people of peace, but give us the courage to stand and fight when necessary. We would stand firm and act like men. We would stand firm with the whole armor We thank you so much for the, the one who has gone before us, our leader, Jesus Christ, who has exemplified these things perfectly. So let us look to him, author and perfecter of the faith. And let us lead and help one another. Those who may be weak and those who may be struggling under the duress and stress of building. Let's stand on guard with them and help one another. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your kindness. In Jesus' name we pray.